Father, we thank you that even today is a day of preparing us to meet you face to face. And we pray, God, that we recognize that it's you who's here today. Your word tells us that. And Father, we want to embrace the authority of your words with great humility of heart. So we pray that we would yield ourselves to your truth today and that you would have your way with each one of us. Father, this is your church. It's been bought with your blood. Lord, we no longer belong to ourselves. We are the property of you, Almighty God. So we thank you for your faithfulness, and we thank you for your love, and we thank you that we get to look at the truth of your word today. And we pray, Father, that as we look at the truth, that we would see the heart it is written with. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you want to go to Acts chapter 17 with me, that's where we're going to be today. Well, it's not really where we're going to be. It's where we're going to start today. You know, there's a lot of books and um, other resources out there that try to tell the church what it should be, um, try to give it ideas and, and new things of what the church ought to look like. And a lot of times these studies are always based upon getting bigger numbers. And, you know, when I look at the Bible, I, I think that really what God's doing is, is for people who have an ear to hear, he's just calling us back to the simple things of God. And, and when I look at the Bible, I, I see the errors of people and I, I see the things to commend. I see the examples and I see the good ones and the bad ones. But I've always been impressed with this church. It's the church of Thessalonica. You know, through the Bible, the first seven churches uh, that Jesus writes to in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, uh, obviously some of them got their correction, some of them got their rebuke, some of them got their encouragement. Uh, you look at churches like the church of Smyrna that was a suffering church, had a perception that they were poor, yet they were rich in the eyes of God versus the eyes of man. You look at the end time church, the Philadelphian church, uh, they pleased the heart of God because they kept his word, they didn't deny his name, they were abiding faithful to Jesus Christ. You see the other churches in there that have left their first love. They needed correction. You see the ones that have gone lukewarm and, and, and they've become self-dependent instead of Jesus-reliant. And, and these warnings are put in the Bible. But we've got this church here called the Church of Thessalonica where we get 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians from. But it was such a rich congregation. And they did things in a way that brought honor and glory to God. They did things in a way that pleased the heart of God. They were very effective. Matter of fact, the Bible says they were examples. And I think really for us as believers, that one of the things that we should be is a witness to those who are lost and an example to those who are saved. And, and as we look at this church, I think that that's what they were. They were a beautiful hybrid of when the Holy Spirit has his way with the church, the great impact and the great effectiveness that it can have down here in a short period that we call life. So we look at this church, and, and before we go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we look at how it was birthed, okay? And it was birthed on Paul's second missionary journey. This was after him and Barnabas split, right? They had a disagreement. They had a sharp contention between them. The mission team got divided, but obviously the hearts got right with God because they went on to be very effective for the kingdom of God. Instead of one team, now there's two. Paul has Silas with him. Barnabas took John Mark. Along the way, 
Paul picks up Timothy. And we're going to see that when we get into this, but I just wanted to give you a quick reference of how it all started. Acts 17, verse 1. Now, when they passed through Amphilus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Okay, this is what we're going to be focusing on, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So that's the place where the Jews worshipped. That was the Jewish church. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them. In three days' Sabbath, he reasoned with them out of the scriptures, okay? So we know that, that Paul's time there was only three weeks. And I think that's important to, to consider when we, when we see the effectiveness of, of Paul's ministry to them. So he was only there probably three weeks, roughly, because he reasoned with them three Sabbaths out of the scripture, okay? And that's where the answers came from. When Paul gave answers, he got them from the word of God, he had, a, he had a reference point of truth that he shared with people, and he recognized that the Word of God was powerful, as we'll see here as we go on. But, but this is what he says in verse 3. He was opening and alleging that Christ must see, uh, need have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. So the whole emphasis... Of, of, of what this church was birthed on, the whole emphasis of how healthy this church be, became be, was on two main principles of Christianity. The ones that we should focus the most on as a church is the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Paying for our sins and rising victorious to give us confirmation that we too, if we have our faith in him, someday will raise. He proved who he was by raising from the dead. So this is what he reasoned. And some of them believed and consorted, and consorted with Paul inside and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. So, so we see a multitude of people, a lot of women getting saved, but the Jews which believed not, they were moved with envy. Okay, And they took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. <laughs> That's a group. And gathered a company and set all the city in an uproar. And they assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. So this was nothing new to Paul. Anywhere he went, man, all havoc broke out because of the spiritual warfare. Probably Satan assigned to him, rousing up people all around him. And when they found him not, they drew Jason and certain brethren and the rulers out of the city, crying, these that have turned the world upside down are now come hither. That was a reputation. They've turned the world upside down, which was a good thing because the world was going the wrong direction. They pulled a 180 by bringing truth into people's lives. And that's what we're going to see. You know, our, our world got flipped upside down the, the day that Jesus Christ entered into it. We were able in grace to do a 180 and not go in the direction that would lead us to damnation and eventually hellfire because of the grace of Almighty God. So that was the reputation that they had. They turned the world upside down whom Jason has received, and I'll do contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Now look at when it comes to the decrees of Caesar and when it comes to the decrees of Jesus, you obey the decrees of Jesus, right? That's what we're called to do. That's what we've chosen to do. And, and they troubled the people and the rulers of the cities, and when they heard these things, and when they had taken security of Jason and of the others, they let him go, and the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who's coming thither, went into the synagogue of the Jews. So he continued to do the same thing. They just He was in town for, for three weeks, roughly, a huge uproar of spiritual uh, warfare, and, and they sent him on in the next town. Now, now, if you will, turn with me to First Thessalonians because this is where we're going to be looking today. Chapter 1. I want you to know this. What we see with Paul there being there for three weeks, 
is that people will come in and out of your life in seasons, but the shortest of seasons can have the greatest of eternal impact. Don't ever discount it. As you continue to let the light of Christ shine through your life and the life of other people, that the shortest of seasons can have the greatest of impact. It did with Paul, and we're going to see what it, how it affected this church. And the focus, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And I think really that's what, that's what the church overall needs to get back to, keeping the main thing the main thing. It's about Christ dying for our sins and rising again the third day. That's the good news of the gospel. So this was the old, this is the earliest letter that Paul wrote. This was his first letter, okay? This one to, uh, to the, Thessalonica, the believers at Thessalonica. So there, there was no miracles here. He just reasoned with them out of the scriptures. He focused on Christ's suffering, Christ rising from the dead, the crucifixion, the resurrection. But one of the things that you notice about this letter is there is a great emphasis throughout this letter. Now, I want you to tie this with the fact of the health of the church. This was a healthy church. But throughout this letter, in its chapters, referenced over and over is the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back. Bible prophecy is such an essential to spiritual health. Okay, that's why it's in there. God has placed in perfect proportion the meal that he wants our soul to feed on, which is called the word of God. And the word of God, I think, is between 25% to 33 and a third percent. It's a quarter to a third Bible prophecy. So important. All right. Matter of fact, John tells us that when we have our mind on Christ's return, we actually purify ourselves. We, we live in light of his soon return for us, and it has an impact, and it really affects the way that we choose to live our life, if we truly believe it. If it's more than just an intellectual belief, but a true heart belief. It affects and it molds our behavior. So we see here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timotheus, which is really Paul, Silas, and Timothy, under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we look at this mission team here, and I want you to think about these individuals, okay? Paul went through all kinds of suffering. Actually, it was his call. God, Jesus said, I'm going to show him the things he's going to suffer for my sake. But he was the most dynamic individual that ever brought the gospel to this lost and dying world, okay? Paul the apostle. All right. So he was willing to, to really sacrifice, you know, a life of uh, affluence and, and he just followed God's calling for his life. We, we look at Silas. He's an individual you don't hear a lot mentioned about him in the Bible, but he's listed amongst men that were willing to hazard their lives for the gospel. That's how important the good news of Jesus was to these individuals. Then you look at Timothy. Here's an individual who was a, a Gentile, but he, w he was willing to go through the act of circumcision as a man uh, in, in his older years because he wanted any avenue possible to minister to people, and he knew that the Jews wouldn't ha hear what he had to say had he not done that act. He really he took on pain to be able to put himself to the side so that he could share the truth with other people. So we look at this group here, and we look at three people who aren't living for themselves. They're living for the glory of God and the furtherance of the kingdom because they appreciated the cross and because they were willing to do what God had asked them to do in their life. Verse 2, he, he, he says this, 
We give thanks, okay? Not just me, but we. Me, Timothy, Silas, we give thanks always for you all making mention of you in our prayers. Now, now look at what he, he doesn't say, look, we give thanks for most of you, or we'll give thanks for half of you. No, he says we give thanks for all of you. And, and what I love about that is you can just see that, that Paul was an individual that understood the grace of God and could look at, at, the, look at people through the lens of God's grace because as he recognized his own perfect, imperfections and the grace that God had shown him personally, he was able to give that same grace out to others. Now, it doesn't take long for you to hang out with people inside of the church to, to maybe see a chink in their armor or a shortcoming or just a struggle. You know, you hang out with me, it won't take you long to see those areas of my life. But I believe for us is that we need to really have a heart of gratitude for one another and, and, and to really have a great appreciation that this is a fabric of a family that God has knit together by his grace. And that really the whole key to really being grateful for one another is that we don't focus on the flaws. We look beyond them. We trust the work of God in one another's life. So when we look at one another, we should be able to extract the good that we see in one another. The areas of victory and blessing that we see in one another's life. That's the way that Paul chose to see the church. Look, people have said it before, man, the church is the biggest dysfunctional family on the planet, and it really is. You know, there's a lot of dysfunction, there's a lot of falling short, but you know what? We've been called to love one another. We've been called to see one another through the lens of God's grace in the way that we handle and the way that we deal with one another. He didn't say, I give thanks for half of you. He didn't say, I give thanks for most of you. He says, I give thanks for all of you. That's everybody, from the oldest to the youngest, from the easiest to the most difficult. He says, I can find things to be thankful for in the people of God. We can only say that and we can only mean it when we know the value of each individual. We were made in the image of God and blood was shed for everybody in this room here. We can only say that, we can only mean that when we're walking in the love of God because the love of God will keep us from the criticism of man. And we can only see that when we're seeing one, or we can only say that when, and mean it when we see one another through the lens of God's grace. I'm thankful for God's grace. That we know that we're a work in progress. Paul, or Paul told us that in Philippians chapter 2, that he's going to complete that good work that he's begun in each one of our lives. So the key is to stay on the wheel and allow God to continue doing the molding in each one of our lives. So he's given thanks unto them, but this is what he says here. I remember this. I remember without ceasing. Your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. Look at, the, look at what was going on in the heart of this church. Now, now remember, the church isn't the building. Okay, you're the church. I'm the church. People who are blood-bought, if Christ is your Lord and Savior, you're the church. And these are the things that were in operation in the lives of the individuals there at Thessalonica that were following Jesus Christ, faith, hope, and love. The greatest fabric, the greatest effectiveness, the greatest influence, those are the things that we need to be praying into our lives, that we would be a people who walk in faith, that walk in hope, and walk in love. Now, he says, I remember this. I remember this about you, but listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. The writer of Hebrews tells us that, that for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. 
Okay, so even though this is the eyes of Paul is remembering this, the very fact that whatever we do for God's glory under the influence of the Holy Spirit with the right heart to bring honor and glory to God, God hasn't forgotten. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and your labor of love which you have shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and you do minister. Okay, so that's what we see with God, that God knows everything that has possibly taken place in our life for his glory, and someday he's going to take us and he's going to place us before the Bema seat of Christ, not the judgment seat for, of heaven and hell, but I'm talking the Bema seat. It's a reward seat of Jesus Christ where you and I, he's going to remember everything we've ever done for his glory, and we will be rewarded based upon faithfulness. So we see here, Three heart ingredients that make a church effective. They're God-honoring and they're impacting to those around them. Faith, hope, and love. If we're allowing God to have his way with us, okay? Now, now this is where we have to take personal responsibility, okay? Not just the person sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you, but, but, but if we're owning this ourselves, if we're allowing God to have his way with us, this is what he's building. This is what he's molding in our character. Okay, this is what he's looking to accomplish in our lives. Not just something that we can reference, but something that we can see taking place within us. Something that we can see taking place within others. He starts off, first of all, your work of faith. Not your work for faith, but your work of faith. The way that you choose to live your life now. It's basically living out the word of God. That we live out the word of God. That we just don't speak it out, but we live it out. The Bible tells us, Paul said, that we're called to be living epistles, known and read amongst men. So we're living the Bible. It just doesn't affect our congregational life here at church. It affects our private life within the walls of our home and the way that we choose to, to honor Christ in the way that we do our jobs and the way that our neighbors observe us. A work of faith. We've been called to a living. We have our saving faith is a living faith and, and we've been called to a living faith. You know, a couple of weeks ago when I was sitting in the lobby waiting to hear how surgery was going in my son's eye, you know, as I was sitting there, you know, the one scripture that came out of my heart was without faith, it's impossible to please God. God's looking for us to trust him. That's what God's looking for his church to do once again is to trust him. So you look at the things and the circumstances and the issues that you're facing in your life today, God's looking for you to trust him with those issues. He's looking for you to trust him with those circumstances. He's looking for you to trust him in those fires and in those storms, in those trials. God's looking for you to trust him. That's what he wants. He wants us to have works of faith taking place in our lives in labor of love. You know, the big thing is, is love's the key ingredient. Remember when when, when Paul wrote to the believers at Corinth, and you hear it quoted all the time at weddings, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 about what love's in. He goes, now abideth these faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. You know, and his church had love going on in it. You know, and I think about love, I think that for us as believers, you know, love is the key ingredient. You know, my wife makes the best apple pies, but I'll tell you what, if she made an apple pie without an apple... It's not an apple pie. You know, she makes great chocolate chip cookies. Man, you take the chocolate chips away from there and she makes those, that's not a chocolate chip cookie. And I'm here to tell you, man, that the church is supposed to be ambassadors of the love for Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you what, if we don't have love operating, we don't have church. 
Love's a key ingredient. The love of God being poured out in our lives and through our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what the church had. And, and, and it had also a, a patience of hope. It was a church that was living in anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ. The greatest thing that they saw on the horizon wasn't the rebound of the economy in our country wasn't a rebound to the politics of their country. It was the very fact that the one who died for them was going to come back for them. That's how this church chose to live. So we see that, that the, the truth of God's word had an impact on how these people lived their lives, and they were very effective in being, a, they were waiting, they were watching for Jesus' return. He says this in verse 4, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Now, you know, th there's been a lot of debates and a lot of arguments over the years in the realm of, of the church, you know, Calvinism and Arminianism and, and free will versus predestination. And, and it's really done a lot of damage to the church over the years, created a lot of, a lot of schisms. And, and when you read the Bible, you see really the Bible, it, it teaches both. So there is a divine hybrid there that probably sometimes can't even be fully explained. But, but I do know this uh, about Jesus. As you think about this, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, is, is that Jesus said, no man can come unto me unless the Father draws him. So think about that. Think about how God has given you the faith to really receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Jesus told us that you haven't, he told his apostles, the same for us, you haven't chosen me, but I've chosen you. The Bible tells us that, that in 1 John, that we love him because he first loved us. So, so we see here that God himself was the initiator. God himself was the pursuer of our lives. And that ought to mean something to us. That ought to give us some kind of an appreciation that we don't take our salvation for granted. But we see here that God actually pursued us. That God loved us so much that he pulled out all the stops to show us our need for Jesus Christ and to bring us to saving faith. So as he speaks this to them, he calls them brethren beloved. They're the loved of God. They're loving one another. And in verse 5 he says this, our gospel came not unto you in word only, but in the power and in the Holy Ghost. All right? Those were the two things that were in operation within that church. That was the powerhouse of the church. And it still is today. Look, if you want to have a powerful witness, if you want to be a powerful believer, as far as your impact and as far as your influence in the short vapor of life, always remember that the power of the church is the word of God and the Holy Spirit. All right? The Word of God is quick and it's powerful. Okay, we need to remember that. <laughs> you know, just speaking it into people's lives, it has power. The other night, you know, me and my wife had a chance to sit out on the porch when the weather was somewhat cooperative and, and, and just fellowship a little bit. And, and she just quoted a scripture to me. And in the midst of our whole conversation, that, that's the one piece, the, the biggest piece that I took away because that, that scripture that she quoted had just such great power behind it. And that's why it's so important for us to remember that, that when we speak the word of God, we're speaking life into people. And when we're testifying of the word of God, we're, we're, we're giving testimony to, to Jesus Christ and all that he says and all that he does. But, 
But it says here that our gospel came not unto you in word only, but in power. It had the power to change their lives and to change the direction of their eternity because it was what? It was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus told his church? He said, look, you're not ready to go out into that world right now. What I've commissioned, what I've called you to, you're just not ready for it. You're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you and then you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. But they needed that power to be released in their life, to go forth and be effective. And part of the fruit of that was the very fact that after that took place in Acts chapter 2, we come to an Acts 9 where we see Saul of Tarsus who is persecuting the church and killing Christians. He gets saved on the Damascus road. He, he, he becomes such a follower of Jesus Christ. And now this is the individual that's at the church at Thessalonica. And, and we just read about that in, in Acts chapter 17. And now he's writing it to this, these individuals. And these individuals are, are being just such an effective examples. And it all took place because of the power of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's where we got to keep our emphasis on. Look, at you get up in the morning, man, your tank's empty. And it's so important if you're thinking, you know what, I want to make a difference for you today, Jesus, is that you really get into contact with the Holy Spirit and you really ask him for a fresh filling. Because without his fresh filling, we're just walking in natural power. Natural power doesn't accomplish divine purposes. And we don't want to just walk out natural power and not accomplish divine purposes. For God's purpose to be accomplished through our day, we need his power doing what only he can do in and through our lives. So the word of God is quick and powerful. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit is come upon you. So that gives us the potential to be everything that God's called us to be as, as ambassadors, his examples, and his living epistles. So the Holy Ghost and and in much assurance as you know the manner of men we were among you for your your sake. So the assurance of the gospel effect. Am I saved? Am I not saved? That's a question a lot of people ask themselves. They wrestle with that. You know, am I truly saved or am I not truly saved? Because I know that there's a group of people in the book of Matthew, that stand before the Lord someday, and they're going to say, Lord, didn't we do this and this and this? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we prophesy in your name? And he's going to tell them, depart from me, I never knew you. One of the scariest verses in the Bible. Because you know what? They did church, but they had no relationship with Jesus. They had something going on down here in the religious sphere, but they didn't have anything connected here in the relational sphere. And he's going to tell them, depart from me, I never knew you. But the assurance of the gospel's effect is what it does to our behavior and our mannerism, what it does to our priorities and our perspective. When the Holy Spirit steps into you, you can't stay the same. You're different. Now there's conviction of sin. There's appetites for the things of God. Everything changes. You can't live a life of rebellion and be confident that you're saved. You can go through seasons of challenges and, and times of stumbling, but you always return back to God. You always get your heart right with God. And the Spirit of God is the one who will always be the, the assurance in your life that you're truly saved. 
Because I know when he stepped into my life, everything changed. You look at Jesus and he touched life. Blind people saw. Maim people were healed. Things just change when Jesus steps into a life. So we see here, much assurance, you know the manner of men we were among you for your sake. They could observe their behavior and observe the fact that a changed life and a changed uh, eternity had taken place. In verse 6, he says, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. So what happened to them? They became followers. You know, I think that's a big thing that, that we got to challenge ourselves with today. You know, am I really following Jesus? So what does that mean? That, that means that when I'm following Jesus, that means that who he is and the truth of who he is and the truth of what he says really is the guide of my life. That's what guides my life. I live by the teachings that he has called me to. You know, 1 John chapter 1 or chapter 2 tells us that we are to walk as he walked. There's a different way. Uh, That's the way that I follow Jesus. I follow him by allowing him to be the leader of my life. And he leads me by his truth. He leads me by his spirit. But you became followers of us and the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. If you will, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with me for a moment. So you look at these individuals here. A church that had faith, had love, had hope and operation. It wasn't just their theology. It was the way that they lived in reality. It's the way they lived out their Christianity. They were following the same path that Paul was walking, following the Lord with all their heart, and it says that they received the word in much affliction, okay? There was a cost to being a believer. If you choose to live for Christ, the battle will will ensue. There will be a battle. The enemy is not going to make it easy on you. He's cruel, he's relentless, and he always hits to hurt. He'll exploit anything, and he'll exploit everything to harass you, discourage you, and to try to get you away from following Jesus Christ with all your heart. Paul went through this. Now, nobody has gone through the difficulties that Paul the Apostle went through. But when it comes to affliction, like we see here with the believers at Thessalonica, and they were maintaining the joy, they were maintaining their faith, hope, and love, but it wasn't easy. Christianity was not designed to be easy. The path that Jesus walked was not easy. Paul says this for our light affliction. (laughs) Light affliction, Paul. What, you've been beaten, you've been stoned, you almost were killed, you came back from the dead. Literally means our trouble, trials, or pressures. That's verse uh, 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment on the eternal timeline, Paul had the ability to look beyond his trials. It works for us. That literally means in the Greek that there is a work inside of us and something is going to be the result of it. Something good is going to be the result of it. Far more exceedingly an eternal weight of glory while we look not at the things which are seen. So our focus isn't just the trials and the afflictions but at the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen, they're temporal, but the things that are not seen, these are the things 
that are eternal. That's the way Paul chose to live life. He embraced, he expected the difficulties. I was just talking to somebody this week, you know, and when it came to, when I got saved, I didn't get saved to, to just get a get-out-of-hell-free ticket. I didn't get saved to, to sign up for an easy life. I got saved because I was a sinner who needed a Savior. And that's why you come to Jesus Christ. You come to Jesus because you're a sinner who needs a Savior. And guess what? Sometimes life doesn't get easier. But it's a light affliction. It's just for a moment. It's working for us a far more exceedingly way to glory because we get our eyes off the things that are temporal or the things that are seen. They're only temporal. We get our eyes on the eternal because that's what matters. And that's what keeps you going on. So you turn back to Thessalonians. But the word that he uses here, having received the word with much affliction or tribulation, the Latin word for that is tribulum. And it's a farming instrument that really separates the wheat from the chaff. When there's a price to pay for following Jesus, then you get to see how genuine you are. Then you get to see the reality of who you are. Then you get to see really what your faith is made of. So he says, you receive the word in much affliction. And he says, with joy of the Holy Ghost. You know, it's interesting when you look at this and you look what that church went through and you look at how healthy they are. Sometimes we get things backwards. And, And I think today, I think about the church in America, right? We've got conferences. We've got retreats. We've got Christian getaways. We've got Christian cruises. We've got Christian DVDs. We've got Christian CDs. We've got Christian podcasts. We've got a plethora of material that we can be edified and built up with that we could be like the believers at Thessalonica. But you know where the healthiest church is? You know where the most dynamic church is? You know where the greatest moving of the Holy Spirit is taking place today? It's taken place in the persecuted church of Iran. It's taken place in the persecuted church in China. It's taken place in a place where these believers gather together underground because it's illegal, and they only have maybe pages of the Bible, but what they know, they believe with all their heart, and when they pray, they pray in faith and sincerity, and when they worship, they worship in spirit and truth, because Jesus isn't something, Jesus is everything. And that's what was going on in this church. And I think sometimes, I hate to say it, but what we need sometimes to get a little jump start in our Christian walk is a little affliction heading our way, a little fire coming our way, maybe a little discomfort in the realm of our comfort. That's what happened with this church, healthiest church. Why? Because they were up on some mountaintop living it up? No, because they were out in a battle living for the glory of God and doing church Jesus' way. Never getting over the blood and trusting in the power of the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, not just for themselves, but for their ministry to those around them. And in the natural affliction, but in the spiritual joy. They had joy of the Holy Ghost. They didn't lose heart. They were energized by the Holy Spirit. They were dependent on the Holy Spirit. And he was supplying something on the inside to be able to handle everything on the outside. So that you, look at this, and you were examples to all that believe. All right, your faith, you were examples to all that believe. Look at, courage becomes contagious. 
all right? And, and in the Christian realm, courage becomes contagious. Remember what Paul said? Paul said in, in Philippians 1.13, who, and he was under house arrest, you know, for, persecuted for the gospel, so that by my bonds in Christ, they're manifest, all right? So I'm paying the price, and it's manifested in all the palace, in all other places, and many of the brethren are waxing bold in the gospel. What did it do? His courage had become contagious. It gave other people boldness because of what Paul was willing to go through. You see that pastor in Canada that's been thrown in jail for not shutting his church down and preaching the gospel? Tell me that doesn't give you boldness. Tell me that doesn't give you, that courage doesn't give you a contagiousness. Watch a New Testament faith and New Testament persecution. He says your endurance through your hardship is an example to emulate. Your examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith. Your faith. They had a different faith. They didn't have just an academic faith. They just didn't have an educational faith. They just didn't have an impressive order faith. They had a living faith. To Godward is spread abroad so that we need not speak to anything. Remember what Jesus said? I just quoted it earlier. You're going to receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. What did we see here with these individuals? The Holy Spirit was having such a way with that church. It might not have been Jerusalem and Judea, but it was right there in Thessalonica, and it spread out to Macedonia. It spread out to Achaia, and in every other place that their faith was spread abroad. For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had among you and how you turned to God from idols serving the living in true God. So we see that they actually, there was a turning that had to take place. Okay, that's that 180 we spoke about earlier. It turned the world upside down. They went 180. All right, that's what repentance is. Repentance is a change in the mind, metanoia, a change in the mind that produces a change in the life. In a response to the good news of Jesus and what he offers us for forgiveness if we're willing to repent of our sins. Look at there's no way you can get to the place of salvation, which means you will never get to heaven if there wasn't a time in your life where you repented. Jesus said, unless you repent, you shall perish. In his book, I Surrender, Patrick Morley writes that the church's integrity problem is in the misconception that we can add Christ to our lives but not subtract sin. It is a change in belief without a change in behavior. Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote that cheap, cheap grace is the deadliest enemy of our church. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without the requiring of repentance. And I'm telling you today, if you've never come to the understanding and a willingness of your own heart that you need to turn from your sin and make that a choice of your will, then you haven't received the forgiveness of God. And maybe that's why you're powerless in your life. And maybe that's why you still continue to live in sin because you've tried to add Jesus to your life, but you never subtracted sin because you never repented. And things never change. So you turn to God from idols and you serve the living and the true God. Right? They served him. It wasn't just about getting saved. 
It was about getting saved and then being used. Remember what Jesus taught us in Mark 10? The greatest is a servant of all. The greatest in God's kingdom is a servant of all. So they saw themselves as servants of the living and true God. And he said this in verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven. So they were waiting and watching. Wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. All right, big thing here. He references what? The resurrection from the dead. What did Jesus say? Destroy this body in three days, I'll raise it again. And what happened? Just like he said, he rose again. So now they're saying to wait for his son from heaven. He raised him from the dead, just like he said he would. Even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Jesus makes this simple statement to his disciples. He says that if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I'll receive you unto myself, that where I am you may be also. So sure as Jesus said, destroy this temple, and three days again, I'm going to raise it. He said, I'm going to come again. And we better believe that he's going to come again. When we do believe that, it impacts the kind of believers that we are today. It impacts the way that we live our lives. We live a life of hope. We live a life of purity. That's what eschatology does for us. It gives us hope. It gives us purified living. First John chapter 3. Even Jesus, and here's the thing, which delivered us from the wrath to come. It speaks about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is going to be poured out. It's going to take place, I believe, according to all prophetic things that we see in the Word of God very soon. But the wrath of God is going to be poured out. But we don't have to worry about the wrath of God in the future because the wrath of God for us was poured out a couple thousand years ago on the cross. Our Lord and Savior took the wrath that was heading our way on that cross 2,000 years ago. In the moment that Christ became your Lord and Savior, all the judgment that you received was removed from you and it was placed upon Him. And you get forgiveness. You get redemption. And we get salvation. What a gracious God. You know what? This church never got over the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And by His grace, may Old Paz Chapel never either. Father, we bless your name. We thank you that we're able to look at wonderful examples like the believers at Thessalonica. And we pray, God, that we would be able to really look at their example and really to follow their example as we follow you. Thank you, Lord, that by your spirit and by your word, you have the ability to produce works of faith, labors of love, and patience of hope in each one of us. And I really pray, God, that we would take that and that we would own that personally, that these are the places that you want to take our lives individually so that when we come together as a congregation, that we can be examples and influences to the believers in our surrounding areas. We pray, Father, that there would be humility, submission, and surrender in our lives as we remember all that you've done for us and the cost, the price that you were willing to pay so that we could be a part of your family. Father, when we think about the afflictions that we go through and sometimes the things that we suffer, the cost that we pay is nothing in comparison to the cost that you are willing to pay. 
So we pray that the gift of the cross would grab hold of our heart to deeper places than it ever has. And the wonderful facts of your resurrection would grab places deeper in our heart than it ever has. The Father, by the time you come back for your church, that we would be pleasing in your sight, not just because of our position of who we are in Christ, but because of how that affected our behavior and how other people know us to be in Christ. We bless you and thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.